All right, episode 71 of the Bobbycast with writer Tom Douglas. Hey, Tom. How are you? It's good to see you, man. Good to see you, sir. So many people say so many great things about you. It's finally nice to get you in here. <laughs> How well, long have you been in Nashville? Well, I came uh, the first time from 1980 to 84, and uh, then I left in 84, never to return. And moved back in 1997, so now I've been wow, here. that much of a gap, huh? Yeah, they're just give or take 13 years. Uh, but uh, yeah, now I've been back 20 years, so it's a, uh, it is, you know, for some people it seems very direct, but uh, for me it was a very circuitous route. So one of the things I like to do is kind of let people know what they're, what they're getting here. I'm going to play a few of your songs and then we'll just kind of start back over. So you wrote The House That Built Me. Which is just a game changer for anybody. <laughs> and we'll come back around to that one in a second. So, the house that built me, Southern Voice. From Tim, I run to you from Lady A. I mean, I have a lot of them. I'm just giving people a taste here so they know the greatness that they're hearing. Raise them up. Some good stuff, and I'm going to hit him with some some other stuff in a minute. Anyway, so you come here in 1980, yeah, to do what? Well, you know, I I I, I grew so I I grew up in Atlanta. Um, I grew up in a household where uh, education and job security were really they were the two preeminent, uh, you know, parts of my life and my childhood. My that's kind of what what was preached to me by my parents. My father was very musical and loved music, and really re- he loved songs. I mean, kind of looking back, I have some perspective. So music was a big part of our household. But um, you know, my, I mean, my mom worked, my dad worked. I mean, they really did a lot to try to get me educated. So, so it sounded like they wouldn't want you to have a creative job where there's not a lot of security. Yeah, no, it would be. I mean, for me to have told my parents that I was gonna. Like, so I, I go to college and graduate school, and I really did try to assimilate into the real world. And I did for a while until I was 27. Then I just thought, you know, the, the call of Nashville was so strong that I just, I didn't really have a great plan. But I talked a publisher in Atlanta into letting me pitch his songs in Nashville. It was Bill Lowry, who was a kind of revered publisher in Atlanta. And I came up here and you know, I just got enough money to pitch songs and I started meeting people. I just, I just wanted to be in Nashville. It was, you know, it's the, it's the, it's almost like the, the siren, you know, in the, uh, in mythology where she's calling you, beckoning you. Why only. do you think that is? Why did you want to come to Nashville so bad? Well, I it just, I think it represented songs. It just, uh, were you writing the whole time you were working? No. Well, I mean, you know, I've written since I was 12. So I've always, you know, had a poetic bent. I've always loved stories. I've always loved songs. I never aspired to be an artist, but I just, you know, I just, I always wrote. It was just, it was the way that I looked at life and, uh, you know, uh, it's, it was just kind of the, the filter through which, you know, I saw everything through songs and through stories. So it was very just second nature to me. I didn't realize that it was kind of unique. I thought everybody looked at life like that, but, um, you know, I just was like, you know, I was 27. I didn't really, I just, I just had to do it. I, it was just kind of an unexplainable desire to, uh, to be here, just to, just to get here. So, you know, I just kind of loaded up and I just came, got an apartment and just the, I just, I just wanted to soak up the sights and the sounds and the people. And what was the, what was, what's Nashville like in 1980? And who was here? Like, who were yeah, the big names? Uh, what was Nashville like in 1980 when you moved well, here? Well, it was, uh, gosh, I hadn't really thought that much about that in, in a long time. It was uh, like, what was happening? Well, okay, so the reason why I'm, I'm a little disconnected from that is because, strangely enough, I did not grow up listening to country music. So I grew up listening to, you know, the. I mean, I think everybody thinks they grew up in the golden era of music, but I grew up with 
like literally in uh, August of 1964, the first concert I went to was Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. I saw the Beatles. Where the Braves used to play. Where the Braves used to yeah. play. So um, then I grew up with, you know, the Beatles and, you know, and Elton John and Springsteen and Jackson Brown. I mean, that was really, I grew, I grew up loving the songs of Jimmy Webb and Chris Christopherson and Hank Williams, but I didn't, I didn't listen to country music. So I came up here and I still, you know, I was like a fish out of water. I didn't really know what was going on in Music Row. Um, and looking back, I don't know, I'd, I'd, I'd have to think about what was going on. I wonder you, what kind of piqued my curiosity. You saw the Beatles in 1964 at a, in a stadium. Yeah. How does that sound? Yeah. Because the technology of, one, playing in a baseball stadium is not that good anyway, even right. today. Yeah. It's, it's not the greatest environment for music, and they do. But then, right? could you hear like, them over the screens? I mean, um, I, I still, it's indelibly etched in my mind, maybe a quarter mile like I got on a bus, a yellow school bus with 20 other kids my age and a couple of mothers and a couple of teachers and we just went to see the Beatles. I mean it was I mean it was like I mean so this is like you know this is Elvis, you know, creates a revolution in 1954. So this is like only 10 years later. And I mean literally girls screaming or was a quarter mile before you got to the stadium. You could hear the screams. You could hear the screams. And it was, I mean, from the moment they started until, you know, until we got a quarter mile away, the girls screamed. And literally they had like four Vox amps and they were singing over the PA of the of the Brave Stadium. That has to sound terrible. Now, again, to today's standards. Right. But... I mean, Do back, you remember hearing and knowing the songs? Was the screen? It was. It was. It was a transcendent experience. It was. It was just. It was just something that um, I'll never forget. It was. I mean, it was truly. It was. It was mysterious and magical. And uh, I mean, it was. I don't know. It's. It sounded amazing. You know, even though you couldn't hear them, it was almost like they were miming. But you. You, you know, it's, it's funny. Sometimes you can hear the songs in your head which is almost as good as, you know, somebody singing if you know the songs that well. So So you were about how old? When I was I think I mean so I was born in 1953, so I was 11. Well, as an 11-year-old, your folks are cool with you going to watch the Beatles well, I mean, or were now they looking, controversial? I can't imagine that. I don't I have no idea how my parents let me do it. I mean, it was it was it was be <laughs> uh, it was but you know, it was a different time. It was pretty innocent and uh, and as I say you know, my father loved it. I mean, he he kind of lived vicariously through me. I think so. I mean, there were you know, like didn't seem like that big of a deal. But now looking back, like what I let my eleven year old children go to Bridgestone and see Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber. I mean, I'd have to go with them, you know, or my wife would. But anyway, I, yeah. So I mean, that was kind of my that was my start, and. uh you know, and then I get to Nashville in 1980 from 84, and I really, I just kind of wander around. I just meet people. I pit songs. I'm learning how to write songs, and, you know, I uh, I uh, tour managed a band that went to Europe. and You went to Europe? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I was uh, the worst tour manager in the history of uh, concert promotion. But. In 1980? Sorry, sorry. Yeah, 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 right. In the early 80s, you flew on an airplane across the ocean. Yes. Did that not scare the crap out of you? Yeah, but you could still smoke cigarettes. How about that? I, so I would sit on the back of a plane. There was a curtain separating first class from economy, and you know people were just smoking cigarettes on a plane. How crazy is that? I guess not that crazy because it was always allowed just, and understood. Just, just the way it was. I get scared flying over water right now yeah. with technology. <laughs> I, cannot, I can't imagine... Like so, you go and you're, you're doing anything to eat. It sounds like you're just trying to eat yeah, meals so and I'm, learn. Yeah, so I'm just getting by. I'm giving blood at a blood bank. Um, you know, you're just doing whatever you're doing. But you know, it was thrilling and exciting. And uh, but at the end of the time, I, so you know, so now it's 1984, and I'm 31. So I've got all this education. All my friends are. Yeah, uh, you know, have gotten married. They've got their first job and their second promotion, and you know, and I just feel like, golly, now I've wasted 
10 years of my life. It was it was very depressing. Do you have any songs at this point that had done anything at all? No. Okay. No. Um, and, I mean, it was really, it was, you know, I mean, Nashville's hard today, but, you know, when you don't have anything going on, that, from the outside looking in, Nashville's a very lonely place. So, you know, at that time I just said, I got up. I got to do something else. So I had met my wife to be, we got engaged and I moved to Texas and tried to put all this behind me and I got in the real estate business. So you were out. I was out. In your mind, you were out. Never coming back. I was just, that was a... What broke you though? What was the final straw? Well, I mean, honestly, I mean, there, you know, there's always, you know, parallel things going on in your life. My father had gotten ill. And so I brought my father up from Atlanta to live with me. And really the combination of my father being ill, caring for him, you know, nothing going on in music, making no money. I was 31. And, you know, I've always I've always had this vision of like a scoreboard clock. And I always see that occasionally, you know, I'll see the scoreboard clock and the numbers are just winding down. It always feels like I'm running out of time. And so it's like the scoreboard clock. It doesn't always, it's not always as big as it is, but at that time I remember thinking, man, I am, I've wasted time and now I'm running out of time. I've got my father. So the truth is, I mean, the combination of, you know, the demoralization of being in Nashville and caring for my father, I just said, I got to do something different. So my, I went to Texas and moved in with my sister and brother-in-law who graciously allowed my father and I to move in with him. I was like, I, I got to start all over again. And that was 1984. And so you started selling houses? Well, I got in commercial real estate. <clears throat> so, and as poorly as I'd done in music, I really, the, the real estate, commercial real estate world was terrible because you're too young to remember this, but interest rates went up to like 21%. Interest rates today are four and a half percent. And there was a savings and loan crisis. And so everything really just stopped. So I was kind of just spinning my wheels again, being in Texas. Uh, But, you know, I was getting married and, you know, starting to have children. I mean, you know, I was I was doing fine. It wasn't like I was, you know, in some catatonic catatonic depression. But uh, I was just I was just starting over. Were you itching? no I really honestly I really did I tried to put the whole music thing behind me I didn't really talk to people about it and I I didn't write for uh, you know a couple of years and then I mean and the truth is so this is now probably 1990 and I was cold calling a shopping center and I was saying I'm Tom Douglas with Cornerstone Real Estate I lease the shopping center down the road if you got any real estate needs I'd be delighted to help you at the same time I was literally having this conversation with God and I was saying it just seems strange that now I'm 38 or 39 and the passion for music was still there it was underlying it you know the soundtrack was playing in my mind I thought it seems strange that I would be cynical and jaded at 39 and cold calling a shopping center in August in Texas. And, and really, and I had an epiphany and it was like, God said, well, you've worshiped the creation, which is the song instead of me. How's that working out? It was, I mean, it was startling. I was like, wow, you're right. I've taken this thing, which is in and of itself is good. I've kind of made it an idol. I really had to destroy the idol of songs. So let's talk about Wag Walker for one second. One of the great things about doing this podcast is I get to do it from home, and my dog is here at the house, which is different than the radio show. My dog doesn't get to come up to the radio show, but I do love my dog, and if you listen to me at all, you know he's 14 years old. I mean, he's been with me through forever, so I do like to make sure he's taken care of, and for me, Wag is awesome. Wag's an on-demand app for getting a dog walker. It's basically like Uber for dog walkers. They're thoroughly vetted walkers. Like, I wouldn't trust someone with my dog if I didn't trust them. You know what I mean? Quality people, experienced dogs. I can tell you my experience has been fantastic with it. Like, I mean, that's what I can tell you. Live GPS tracks your dog's walk. Notification when your dog uses the bathroom. Your phone will bark at you if you want it to. 
you get a report card after it. So WAG, that's what you want to do, search WAG. The best part, you don't have to be home. WAG sends you a free lockbox, or you can leave alternate home instructions in the app, and so it's right there for you. So it's an on-demand app. And again, if you love your dog, you can be home when they come, or you can not be home. WAG is a must-have if you're a dog owner. You can get your first WAG for free, too. Just text the word, text the word BONES to 25324. Text the word BONES to 25324, and you get your first WAG. But just uh, search WAG, WAG Walker, and bam, there you go. You got it. Okay, so you come back. And what year did you come back to Nashville? I moved here in ni- back in 1997. Wow, uh, so. So, but, you know, so, but, uh, so, I don't know if, if you want to go chronologically, but, but, so what happened was I kind of slowly regained my love for music and started writing songs again. And feeling like I was always starting over. That's when I went to SMU early one Saturday morning in probably 1992. And, you know, I, I started writing the song Little Rock, which really was just autobiographical. Which is Colin Ray. Colin Ray. I played a little bit of this. I love this. Is, I'm from Arkansas, so this, we played this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Little Rock. I'm solid as a stone, baby, wait and see. Just one small problem here in Little Rock Without you, baby, I'm not me So you write this when you're still living in Texas? Yeah. And then I go to, I joined songwriter associations everywhere I went. I went to Austin in the summer of 93, reconnected with Paul Worley, whom I had known as a guitar player when I lived in, in Nashville, you know, nine years earlier. And um, gave him a cassette at a cocktail party, expecting him never to listen to it. And about two weeks go by, and he calls him one day and says, I've been listening to a couple of these songs. I think I like them. Why don't you let me run with it and see if I can get anything going? And so Paul signed me to Sony Publishing, and the first song I got recorded was Little Rock. The first song you got recorded at 41 years 41, old right. is this monster right here. <laughs> Everybody knows this song. <laughs> I saw Adam Craig when he was on your show. Yeah, and I, I think you just asked him. I did. I was like, I was like, can you play Colin? Because yeah. he, he, Adam Craig has that Colin Ray t- texture of his yeah. voice. I mean, this song, I hear it reminds me of my childhood. Like yeah, that's how strong right. this song is. Oh, and the fact that you wrote it, handed it off, never thought you get a call. When did it go? Hey, and how far along was Colin in his career? Colin, he had had he'd had "Love Me" and he had and he'd had uh, is it in this life? He'd had a, he'd had a couple of hits. I mean, and he was everybody loved his voice, and Paul was producing him, and yeah, I mean, it was you know. So I mean, after you know, I mean, Paul basically signed me just based on that song, and uh, you know, miraculously, Colin Ray recorded it. So. Does that song end up being, is that what makes you move to Nashville? Well, but then, you know, I had such a mistrust for Nashville, which is, I think, healthy, that I, I, I commuted up here one week a month for four years and then moved my family back in 1997. For four years, you commuted back yeah. and forth to Nashville? Yeah. I still stayed in the real estate business. I was sure it's, it wasn't going to work. I just thought this was a one-off and... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm still not sure it's going to work. But so. what a one-off. Like, that's a monster. <laughs> okay, so you move back thinking, I can make a good run at this again. What makes you think, okay, I have to move back now? Well, you know, I was 45, and I'd been up here enough. I'd made a few relationships. Sony is the only publisher I've ever had. And so they they made it possible. I mean, so now I'm 45. I have three children, and... Uh, you know, kind of my second renewal was coming up with Sony, and they said, well, you know, we really think you could do this, but it'd be better for you and for us if you were here. And so they made it possible. And I was, my father had I had just passed away, and it was almost like I had a clean break just to start, it, start out all over again. So you moved to Nashville. <clears throat> What's your first taste of success as a, Nashville songwriter. Well, and then Colin Ray recorded a song called Love Remains and, uh, you know, and The Gift. I mean, it was still slow going because everything I've ever done has been 
it's just it's 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 really left of center i i've never really been able to go right down the middle of the fairway i'm either on the far left or the far right but it seems like so far at least with the call and race stuff and we'll get to the rest of it you actually make the fairway like what you do when it becomes successful (laughs) it shifts everything else to it (laughs) well sometimes you know i mean i've I've had to the hardest thing over all the years you know i mean now i've written like 1700 songs in 24 years but the hardest thing is just convincing myself to still do what i do i still have such a tendency to follow trends or try to be something that i'm not and i i really have tried but it's almost like you know a piano vocal with a cello is like that really that's that's almost all i can do every song is kind of that tell me about this one here Pretty, pretty familiar voice right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that was, again, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have a career without Paul Worley. So that was, again, Paul. And, I mean, I, I so I do love Springsteen. I love you, too. I love Dylan. And the, you know, the, the, the device that they use in a lot of songs are, you know, the verses are vignettes, three completely unrelated vignettes. And it's tied together by, like, a two-line chorus. I mean, like. Grown men don't cry. Is I don't know why they say grown men don't cry. I don't know why they say grown men don't cry. Love's the only house big enough for all the pain in the world. Love's the only house. I mean, it's like I love songs like that. That's that's kind of in my my DNA because I've listened to so many songs like that. So I I but I start all these songs on piano and then I have to find somebody somehow to you know to translate it to make it you know you know make it sound like a record um so that happens in the studio sometimes but i mean even the house that built me is the demo was a piano vocal which i have here the demo i thought if i could touch this place i feel it this brokenness inside me might start healing out here it's like I'm someone else I thought that maybe I could find myself Who's singing? That's me that, like, yeah. What are you talking about? You're not a vocalist that, That's like some Bruce Springsteen meets Tom Waits <laughs> Kind of Listen to that Build me Mama. I buy that version. The uh, well, so the, all I can do is like, yeah, if I do that, and then I have to. F- the success I've had. I mean, I've, now I've co-written most of these songs, as you know. Like that was with the great Alan Shamblin. Uh, the I have to. F- I mean, if it's if it's if it's what I do, which is the piano vocal, I have to then f- find an artist that can take that original but then translate it to the, you know to what they do and that that doesn't often happen so when you make this demo and you do you shop it or or does someone go this is perfect for Miranda? well we you know we were alan and i worked on that for seven years uh you know we started it uh and then we demoed it turned it into the publisher and they were like yeah that's cool which is, you know is like code speak for this will never see the light of day and we're it's maddening it's, you know you think everybody's a raging idiot <laughs> and only to look in the mirror and realize that you're the raging idiot so yeah um but we worked on it we redemoed it you know and we just kept we knew that there was something there and the truth is we had too much detail and at the very end so you know seven years later from when we started we just laid the lyrics down on the coffee table and said, what is wrong? There's something that's not connecting. And we didn't have, uh, well, we had to take out some detail and, and we didn't have, uh, if I can just come in, I swear I'll leave. Won't take nothing but a memory. We didn't have that, which is the line that precedes the hook. And as you know, the, the line that precedes the hook is often more important or as important as the hook itself. Why would you stay with a song for seven years? 
Well, you know, I mean, I love songs. I really do. Uh, you know, and it's, well, it's, it's a love-hate relationship. But songs that are unfinished, they just, they kind of drive me crazy. And um, I don't do that with all songs. But there are certain songs that you're just, like Love's the Only House took, it took years. Um, you know, multiple demos. And, you know, you just, you, you just, you just have to, you know, you just have a feeling about certain songs and you just got to stay with it. I, you know, rewriting really does help with a lot, you know, in songs. I mean, time does make some songs better. I'm curious to know, as we're talking about the house that built me, it took that long. How did you know you were done? And then when do you make that move to go, okay, now really, I'm done. Yeah. Can we get an artist? I don't, you know, I. it's almost like I think for the songwriter, it's almost not up to us to even ask that question you know we're so we have to be all process and detach ourselves from the end result so it's almost like right so we we wrote it demoed it turned it in nothing wrote it demoed turned it in nothing wrote it demoed it turned it in you know the siren screamed and the red lights flashed and that's when we knew you know it's I mean everything we do is kind of based on what four other people in the world think so it's if those if if the bell rings of those four other people then we're good if not then we just have to keep going so is miranda the first one to put it on hold well i mean it it honestly it was one of those like you know it was a you know it was like an atomic bomb i mean it was one of those palpable reactions where everybody loved it um and it went on hold for literally everybody at the same time and of course, we were trying to get the song to Blake Shelton. And, you know, so the story goes. So Sony Terry Wakefield plays it for Scott Hendricks, who's producing Blake Shelton. Scott Hendricks sends the, uh, you know, a, a, a tape or a CD with 10 songs on it to Blake Shelton every week to listen to songs. He comes back from tour, one windswept Oklahoma night. He puts the CD in his truck. And he's going down this highway, and uh, third song in, it's the house that built me. His girlfriend at the time starts weeping, and he says, baby, what's wrong? And she says, that's my story. And he said, well, if that's your story, maybe that's your song. So if you want to get a song to Miranda Lambert, you work on it seven years, you pitch it to everybody, get it on hold for Blake Shelton, and Miranda hears it. So it's it's a it's a mysterious uh event i have wow. no idea how to get a song to miranda lambert i really don't so you get word she's cutting the song yeah and at that point is it she's cutting it and we think it could be a single for the radio or is it just she's cutting the song she's cutting a song but i mean you know most songwriters that i know we really are fans i mean we are fans of music and we're fans of country artists and we we really we love country music so Everybody loves, loved, and loves Miranda. And so the fact that as great a songwriter as she is, that she was cutting a song that she didn't write was, you know, an equal honor. And so, you know, the producer, Frank Liddell, called me, you know, after she recorded it, and he came, you know, to his office and played it for me, and it was so stark. It was like, I mean, it was like it was like two guitars and a vocal. It was like I was like I, I literally said, "You're not going to put any drums on it." I mean, it was like it was just it was so like just bare that I was honestly I was I was I prob- probably was discouraged. I was like, "Oh man, this is this is I don't know what this is, but this is just doesn't sound like anything that I'd really heard before in country music." But thank goodness they were true to their ideals in their art and for both of you miranda and for you this this is a career changer yeah it's it's yeah yeah it's a career changer it certainly is uh for uh alan and me and uh yeah i mean it was uh yeah it was i mean everything about it was just phenomenal i'm gonna play it and to hear you talk about it and to hear it like right here Start healing. When you hear it right now, out here it's like I'm 
removed a bit. Yeah. Removed from the process, removed right. from the awards. Like, yeah. What do you think right now when you hear it? I mean, it's, it's goosebumps. It's just, it's something that, you know, it's just, it's, I think it's, that's what music is. It, it, it um, you know, her, she really has made the song her own, which is the ultimate compliment to a songwriter. And that's Miranda's song. And it's just, that's the greatest honor I think you can have as a writer. And it's, you know, it just, it, it does what art is supposed to do, which is it, it, it reduces our defenses. It opens us up and helps us not feel numb and feel something again. And so much of life is all about numbing us, you know, the chaos of life, the headlines. Uh, it's, it's, it's a numbing, you know, uh, it's a numbing process, and that's I think art. That's what art does. It 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 reminds us to feel something again. When you have a song like that, and it's that big of a hit, and you've already had hits, we'll play some of the other other ones too. But do people start knocking on the door a lot more? You know what? You would think so. I mean, we, you know, we Alan and I both we thought, all right, we're going to try to leverage this to write with John Legend or Beyonce or Adele or you know kind of we had visions of grandeur and honestly none of that materialized i mean like nothing it was like i and i still don't i don't know why now oddly enough over over time you know alan and i thought you know within the the first year we're gonna get all these very fascinating co-writes and it just it really didn't happen i mean we had you know, we we were able to write songs, but I, I don't know. I think we, I think Alan and I got a little lost in the, in the, in the, in the tidal wave of the song. Tell me about this one here, because I got a lot of them that I want want you to talk about. This world keeps I run to you from Lady A. Yeah. So you write this with them, yeah. All three of them. All three of them. So. You know, as the publisher sets you up with the next big thing, you know, weekly, the next big thing in Nashville, there's a buzz. All of a sudden, there's this fresh-faced trio with kind of a crazy name. And um, so, the you know, Lady Annabellum's coming to your house in two weeks. So I, I mean, and I loved what they had done. I'd heard their demos, and I think I'd seen them around playing. And so, you know, I'm, as a professional songwriter i'm supposed to have great ideas that's why they're coming to you so they show up and it's like you know with each successive day i'm like the more time i have to prepare for something the more paralyzed i become so i had i couldn't i couldn't rhyme blue with you (laughs) so i'm running in the nashville marathon oddly enough the weekend before i follow this guy for five miles he's got i run this town on the back of his t-shirt so I'm thinking metaphorically, symbolically, I run this town like the mayor, like a mafia boss, like, you know, from point A to point B, I'm, I'm delirious following this guy. I develop an intense hatred for the guy. <laughs> Monday morning, they show up. And they're going to come at 10. I'm sick to my stomach. I'm thinking, this, how, how is this possible? I've got, and I, I, just, I have no ideas. And so literally they came, you know, eager, expectant, you know, for me to have a, you know, at least a decent idea. And uh, I literally, I put my hands down on the piano and I, I sang, you know, I run from hate and I run from prejudice. And as I was even singing that, I was thinking, I don't even know what it means. And I'm, I wrote it. I wrote these words and I opened up my, my eyes to think they're packing their briefcases and leaving. And they're like, man, that is, that is brilliant. Of course, I said I've been saving that for you for weeks. <laughs> so fortunately, they uh, they hung in there, and that was. Uh, but it, you know, it's very poetic. It's odd words. You know, it's prejudice, pessimist. I mean, it's it's. I love poetry. I, I'm really I'm I'm crazy about words, and uh, you know, I I mean, words are important. They're important to me, but. I really think people come to songs. I think I think people I think the first. I mean, you, you would. I'd be curious to see what you 
say about this. I, so let me make a gross sweeping generalization. Rhythm is the foundation of songs. What do you say to that? I think there are a lot of songs that I love and I have no idea what the words are. Yeah. But, but I think more importantly than melody or chords or production, it's rhythm. Rhythm really is what, rhythm is what draws us in. Um, and I, I, really, I, I haven't really paid attention to that through the last 24 years. But the longer I'm doing this, the more and more I'm, I'm at least paying attention to rhythm. There's this song now, uh, Despacito. No. Despacito. It's like the new most streamed song ever, YouTube song ever. It's all Spanish. I don't know why I love it. It's got a rhythm though. This. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I ha- I have I heard about it because it's the most streamed song. Yeah. yeah. And again, you say that I don't know a single word of it. That's fascinating. But I listen to the whole thing, and I'm yeah. like, yeah, this you my, get it. I'm like you, this, this is this my jam. I you, feel it. Like I know what. I don't know what they're saying, but I know what they're trying to say. Right. Well, you 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 know how it makes you feel. Which is, you know, that, that's what they often say. Is I'm not really, I don't really remember what he said, but I know I remember how he made me feel. That's a lot of times. That's what music does. You teach songwriting. Well, I yes, yeah. How do you teach songwriting? Like, well, if I were to take your class, I'm like, yeah. Tom, teach that, teach that right. Right. Well, I really specifically it's lyric writing. So uh, you know, we do get into the whole thing of songwriting, but I, I. I uh, I still am affiliated with Belmont, uh, love Belmont, but uh, I taught lyric writing with a, I co-taught with a friend of mine for five years. And, um, you know, really, I mean, lyric writing is, uh, you know, it's just trying to get people to not edit what they do and just, you have to kind of start free form, um, I mean, like literally if we were going through an exercise, it would be like, Let's you and I go to the Frist Museum and let's see whatever exhibit is there and let's walk around those rooms and let's just let's just find a painting or a sculpture that means something to you that you just you just like. And then let's come back and maybe take a picture of it and let's write a short story that you know that uh, illuminates whatever this picture happens to be. And you know, so you write 250 words and then you say, okay, so, you know, if like, what's the main point from that 250 word essay? Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's fear of flying. Uh, and, you know, and so you, you just kind of start, uh, you know, lyric writing particularly is just, it's just getting in touch with who you are, giving yourself permission to feel and, um, I, I I think there are two types of songs and two kinds of songwriters. I'm always trying to remember something. And I think most people are trying to forget something. So every song I write is really about remembrance. But, I mean, the majority of songs that you play on your radio show, I think are about forgetting. Example of each, please. Well, um... Like what's the what's the number one song and like take um uh, take Thomas Rhett and Marin Morris' song Craving You okay so that's that's about I think that's that's the the whole thing makes you forget something it, it's your uh, I mean if I were to put myself you know in the mind of the writers they're just they're they're just it's it's just about one small unique experience which is it's a moment in time it's a relationship it's a thing and it's it's you're not it's there's no there's no past and there's no future it's just all right now so it's to me it's a disconnect from you know from the before and a disconnect from the after um i mean any of those songs i mean the house that built me is you know i'm trying to i've gotten lost and I can't remember where I'm from or to whom I belong. And it's just about coming back home and remembering who you are. Let me play this one here. Keith and Church, Raise yeah. Them Up. Yeah. When you wrote this, was it written for two people? No, no. And I mean, honestly, Jeffrey Steele and I walked in on Jaron Johnston, who's an amazing 
songwriter in, in the band Cadillac 3. And Jaron kind of had this thing started. And he had he had the title. So Jeffrey and I just were like kids in a candy store. All, all we started to do is we just, we just started... Every, I mean, you like literally, we just sat there and thought, let's connect everything that could possibly connect it with the words raise them up and let's just fill the verses full with that. So raise up a glass, raise up a sail, raise up a, you know, raise a toast, uh, you know, raise up a flag, you know, raise up a child. It's just, I mean, that, that's, that is just kind of a free form association of, of of one of three words, raise them up. Did that one feel good and complete when you finished it? Yeah, that was that was that was quick. It was one day. Jaron does these amazing little demos, and um, I mean, I, I think we played it for a few people. But then when we heard Keith loved it, that was amazing. And but then I mean, then we have heard this through the you know through the years. I, don't, I mean, Keith didn't say this, but I, I've heard people say that he got a little bit uncomfortable with the fact that he's Australian and there's that patriotic verse. And he was like, I don't know if I can pull this off. Can an Australian guy sing about, you know, fist black and blue fight for the truth. Can you, can he sing? And I think the producer like Nathan Chapman said, well, what if we got, you know, somebody to come in and sing it with you? And I think he just said, God, that's brilliant. Let's- wow. So I don't know if that was Keith's idea or Nathan's, but somebody had a great idea to get uh, Eric Church involved, and that was that was that was amazing. Nobody more American than Eric Church. That's, that's right. It's about as American as you get. Jeez. Wow, what a story! I love this George Strait song. I, said, well, I got a car. She said, "There's something." I got a car. Yeah. And to get George to cut a song. Right. Well, George Strait loves Keith Gaddis. Keith Gaddis is a real. He's a real cowboy. So that's, I wrote that with Keith. And I mean, I'm not saying this to be disingenuous. Honestly, I sat there while Keith kind of wrote that song. And I just was like, that's great. That's great. Can I get you more coffee? That's amazing. <laughs> um, and he does, you know, I mean, Keith Gaddis, he, he you know, he still is a, an artist. But I mean, he's, he just, he, you know, he just bleeds that West Texas, you know, cattle rancher, which is George Strait. So you say that that you sat there, but if you're writing, you know, in your lifetime, you say you wrote you know, a thousand, thousand songs. Does it kind of balance out? Were there also songs that you wrote and somebody else has sat there? Well, yeah, and and yes, yes. I mean, there are days where you're the editor, and there are days where you're the artist in the room. Um, so you just you just kind of have to. There can't be. I think you can't. There can't be two artists. They compete, and there can't be two editors. Somebody's got to take the lead. So I have done this long enough that I really I do want to facilitate whatever's. Bad. We just want to honor the song. What does the song need? That's what I want to. You know, that's what I want to do. I want that's to be really there. interesting that you you say it like that because no one said it before. Where you're kind of filling roles, and yes. the roles can be filled differently each time you write a song. Yeah, right. But somebody's driving, right. and somebody's got the map out. Yeah, right. That, that that's, and I haven't been able to articulate it like that. But that's exactly like we've got a destination. The destination is the song. The journey is the process. Yeah, so you you there can't be two drivers and there can't be two navigators. Man, you should really write songs. This is it's fantastic. Yeah, that's fantastic. How about this one here? Meanwhile, back at Mama's, the porch lights on. Come on in if you wanna. Supper's on the stove and beers in the fridge. Red sun sinking out low. I remember when this song came out, and for me, I grew up listening to Tim on the radio. Yeah, like I grew up, and it was. Garth and Tim and you know even you played Colin Ray like that to me was right. when I was listening to Kiss of 96 and Little Rock or US 97 and Hot Springs those were the artists on and I remember you know Tim growing up listening to just the start with obviously Indian Outlaw and Don't Take the Girl right. like his first couple of singles and then following Tim all the way up and when this song came out I was actually on the radio getting to play it I was like man this is so traditionally progressive mm-hmm. it was almost like a rewind song that still sounded like right. today yeah when you write a song like that do you feel like you're doing that like you're trying to take a step back i don't know i don't i don't think it's as i don't think it's as conscious as that uh you know I, we're all the 
everything we do is the you know summation of everything that that you know that's come before us so we're we're borrowing from ourselves and we're borrowing from i mean that is very similar to you know uh, just to see you smile just to see you smile but the the trend though was not that when that song came out i know i mean that's the magic of tim mcgraw who continues to reinvent himself and kind of defy tradition when it gets real you know real progressive he'll do that and then when it gets real country he'll do you know you know live like you're dying i mean he is a you know he's a He's a metamorphosis. You have a lot of Tim cuts, and yeah. I, I mean, I have five up here, and, and you may have more than that. But so, are you in the what they call Tim camp, where he well, hears your songs? I love Tim McGraw, and again, I mean, he has recorded more of my songs than anybody. So, so Tim's recorded more of you than anybody. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I mean, if Tim and I are friends, uh, but. You know, I, I mean, as artists, they have to be like, what's the best for this record at this particular moment? So, at the same time, though, they have a voice, and if someone has a voice like your inner voice, and you're like, yeah. man, they actually speak. Yeah, they 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 speak like I speak. Right. Do you feel like you and Tim have that? Well, <laughs> excuse me. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, he has three children. I have three children. Um the the way I really got connected to him was was through Grown Men Don't Cry. That was the first song he had, and then uh, uh, he invited me to come out to California when he was doing the movie Flicka because they needed an end title for the movie. And so I went out there and I spent a couple of nights on the set with him and met Billy Bob Thornton, and it was an amazing experience. But just trying to soak up the sights and sounds of that movie, and uh, so you know, yeah, w- there's certainly commonalities to his life i think we probably you know in some ways the way we look at life and think are similar this one here southern voice is a big one yeah well i love i love the south i love my daughters and my wife all went to old miss so i spent a lot of time in oxford in uh, oxford mississippi oxford has this amazing bookstore called square books and you walk in Square Books, and it's got um, a great poster that says, you know, uh, Southerners, we may not know how to uh, talk, but we sure know how to write. And they had pictures of Eudora Welty and, you know, Robert Penn Warren, William Faulkner, and Flannery O'Connor. And I just, I just started thinking about the distinctive way that Southerners think, talk, and the way that we look at the world. It, it really is it's very different than other parts of the country. And just kind of what a southern voice is and so my friend bob DePiro, who's from you know he's not he's from ohio but he uh you know th- that really was so fun to write because we just kind of name checked every famous southerner that there was from michael jordan to you know bear bryant to billy graham to dale earnhardt it was just that was that was a fun one to write did you write today i did write today how do you feel about today's right well, today was with my least favorite co-writer, which is myself. So I was I was working on a song by myself. Uh, so it's it's you know it's it is so the songs I write by myself are different. Um, but you know it's I don't know it's it's kind of a beautiful torturous relationship. You know when you write by yourself, I I, I really do like it. It's. Uh, I love co-writing, but I, I do. I really like writing by myself as well. How hard is it to remember all the writers that you write with? Because you throw out a number that you've written. Yeah. How many songs you say you've written? Seventeen, eighteen hundred. Okay, you don't know every co-writer that you've written with, yeah. and people are like, "Hey, you wrote this song." Is it hard? Do you have to like go back and cram sometimes? Well, like- yeah. I mean, I was uh, like, uh, you know, in the last year, I was at a restaurant. I was eating dinner with some friends, and it was a co. It was a a songwriter and his wife and this girl comes up to the table and they're talking and it was my friend Barry Dean and he says this is Stephanie and uh, I said Stephanie so nice to meet you and she said well actually we've written together and I was like (laughs) 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 that's embarrassing and I quickly tried tried to recover oh yes yeah I remember that it was but 
Anyway, yeah, it's, uh, but you know, we're all kind of about, the songwriters are about the, all the next thing. Like, whatever has happened in the past, it's just, it just doesn't matter. Songs, in a sense, even the catalog, all these songs, I mean, they sound amazing. It, it, it almost like it, it shocks me to hear the songs, because I, songs, in a sense, become poison, and that they will try to destroy you. So, and what I mean by that is, is it what they do is they try to keep you in the past and they try to prevent you from going on to the next thing and as a writer we have to be all about the next the next thing you know the best song it's the best song i've written it's the next one so you come to nashville in 80 you move away a few years later you move back 13 14 years. i mean it's, right in 2009 or so you win the triple play. You have a triple play. Three right. number ones in the same year. Yeah. That's like movie type stuff. Right. Well, you know, it, 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 it should give everybody that's, you know, that's still, I mean, we're all aspiring, but someone that's, you know, that hadn't quite figured it out yet. I mean, I didn't get my first country song recorded until I was 41. And, you know, if you love it, you just, you just stay with it. And it's, it's a gift. And, you know, you just try to enjoy the God-given gift of creativity and be about it, share your music with anybody and everybody that'll listen. And I'm just looking at some notes here. Even, it's just wild that you've been relevant so long from Colin Ray to Brett Elder, something I'm good at. And with, I say relevant, like on the progressive side, you've been progressive for so long like that's quite the span of time to be progressive because progression always eventually gets caught. Right. Yeah. Well, I do think about that. I, you know, I think one of the keys to you know, I mean, of course, I'm a, I'm now, you know, it used to be I was like the father in the room, and now I'm the grandfather in the room. So that I think one of the ways to do that is is just to embrace that. But you know, it's continuing to. I mean, I, I collaborate with a lot of very young people. You know, people that are like you know, like. You know, I ask, I'll, you know, come up like, how old are your, like, how, how old are your parents? 45. 45? <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, so you just have, you have to keep working younger, writing younger. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to write the perfect song. I mean, I'm like, I'm just, I'm driven to, you know, try to get better. Like that Brett Eldred song? It's nuts. Well, yeah, but you, but yeah, you talk yeah. about rhythm. There's a lot of rhythm well, in that song. I mean, that's a perfect case of what I'm talking about. But I mean, that's again, I was I had tortured Brett for about three hours trying to write. Like we'd written a song that we both love called One Mississippi that was on his first album. Loved that song, by the way. And we were trying to write that part too and just couldn't do it. And so Brett said finally he was like, Hey, what if we just and he just started banging out some rhythm and I just got my Notebook, and I just started jotting stuff down, you know, voice memoing him doing it, and you know, probably within an hour we kind of had it, and just thought, well, at least that was it was like a cathartic experience. Uh, it was a cleanse, and uh, you know, I mean, but th- that's I was just I was Brett Eldridge's lightning in a bottle, and I was just trying to capture it. He's he's magic. This Gwyneth Paltrow song, "Coming Home." Again, that's a that's a veer. Yeah, right. Yeah, she's playing a singer. Yes, yeah. She can sing. Yeah, she. Yeah, it was that was. Yeah, I mean, it was that was. Uh, was it written for this? Yes. No. So you know, Sony kind of had an inside track when this when Country Strong was being made, and so everybody in town, you know, started writing songs for it. But you literally got a script, and it'd be like, I love writing songs for movies, so you write a script. I mean, in the script, is like, you know, it describes the scene and, you know, song needed here. And so I got with, you know, uh, Hillary Lindsay and Troy Virgis and Bob DePiro, and we, you know, we wrote that together. But, yeah, we were writing that for the movie, and honestly, Hillary Lindsay is like, have you ever, have you ever heard her sing? Oh, yeah, we uh, play a lot of yeah, her. I mean, so she's just, so she was singing, and it was just, we were just all transported to another realm. Uh, but yeah, that that was we we that was. It's even weird to see your song in a movie. 
It is, yeah. Of course, it wasn't really in the movie that long, but you know they never are. That's yeah. a, it's not yeah. Chicago, but even for right. a second, yeah, yeah. But that was we got to go to the Golden Globes and the Oscars, so that was that was that was crazy. What impresses your your family, your kids now? Because you've done a lot. Like, what impresses them at this you know, point? I, I mean, I think they've been around it so long. Now, I do have a 26-year-old daughter, and she's writing songs with my encouragement. And so, you know, we kind of, we talk shop, and um, I mean, I'm encouraging her, and she's encouraging me. Uh, I mean, my wife is honestly, re- she's co-written every song I've ever written. You know, I mean, <laughs> I've made her listen to almost every song, and. She's great. She is not impressed with me. She's not impressed with music, but she she's got a great ear. So occasionally, you know, I mean, she she'll often, you know, have a suggestion here or there, and I I begrudgingly have to have to follow it. I want to hear this demo one more time at the house that built me. It's so, it's so good. You had to be like, this could be a thing. When you cut this, you had to be like, this could probably be the song. Well. Honestly, we think that every song we write. But even you singing it, you're like, this here, even no, with my vocal. I, every song we write, there's a point in the process where you think, this is the best song I've ever written. Only to be, you know, disappointed about 30 minutes later. But I think you have to, like Jimmy Webb, this great songwriter, talks about suspending disbelief. You have to suspend the disbelief while you're writing to be able to write it. And you have to kind of think, God, th- this is, you just get caught up in the, magic and mystery of collaboration when you finish something because I have a problem with when I write like a book or whatever I'm doing creatively I hate it for a while yeah do you ever reach that point yeah, where yeah. you've been inside of it so much that you just don't even know yeah like where was I what was I I don't even understand what I'm trying to do here yeah I mean I feel like that constantly but again I, th- I, I think the thing that we have to tell ourselves is look that's somebody else's responsibility to make those value judgments, you're, you're, that's not your job. You're, that's the job of a publisher, of a of somebody else. I think when we get too much in the headset of a critic or a somebody on the business end of it, it somehow thwarts the creative process. So you know, it's like the critic in our head is, you know, that's the arch enemy that we have to. We just have to constantly try to silence the critic who's trying to get you not to write or to be too critical or you know just to be inside your head instead of you know being on the paper being present it's a, it takes great mental discipline to do this don't you think i don't have it like and again i write in a lot of different ways well, you know you, you stand-up to- comedy books you know but my discipline is just continuing to do it but there's nothing that i do and i come away from it going that was good Ever because I get inside of it and I'm like, hey, this is not funny anymore. This is not good anymore. This is not compelling. And I just want to run away from it. Every time I want to run away, but I. Well, no, I mean, I feel like that too. I am so, I get so dissatisfied. I just, you know, you could, it's, it's just, it's up and down. The last couple of weeks, all I can think about is all the time I've wasted and all the, all the opportunities I've missed. I, I really am, I, I've just been. And then I start seeing the scoreboard clock shows up again. I'm like, wow, am I, am I take, am I, am I using the time that I have, you know, to its greatest asset? And, I, you know, those are, it's okay to do that for a while, but you got to get rescued from that. Otherwise you just, again, that start, when I do that, I'm like, all right, I'm worrying about the, the end result which is is Tim McGraw or Blake Shelton is anybody going to care about this and then when when, it, when you get there then you're you're kind of sunk you have to quickly get off that and be like oh wait a minute that doesn't matter what matters is the next song I got to write so how much do I owe you for this hour class I just took like yeah. these kids come they pay. this has been like therapy I should pay you about four hundred dollars <laughs> just to listen to I think me. we're probably even then <laughs> well I've enjoyed it this Thank has you. been a, this has been a fun hour for me I, I I appreciate you coming by can people take your class if they're like well I I, I honestly I got so busy I don't have time I didn't I, I've had to temporarily uh, halt teaching at Belmont but. I mean, I'm very involved with the NSAI, which is a great organization, and uh, I, I love talking. It's, I'm not really teaching. I'm 
I'm co-learning with somebody. So it's like I love talking about it. I love working through it. Um, we really, you know, creative people, we, re- we need community. We need each other. We need people to remind us uh, of, you know, of, of all that we've got and, um, you know, all that we're doing and all that we're doing well. You know, because I think the default, the, 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 the normal default position in my mind is just to think of all that I haven't done well and, you know, all the time that I've wasted. But uh, this has been very encouraging for me today. But I'm telling you, I mean, you may not see it like that, but you're, you're, you're incredibly creative and you're, it's not contrived and it's fluid and it's fun and it's, it's transparent. It takes, you know, and you, you do risk a lot, but I mean, that's, that's part of, uh, that's part of what we love about what you do is that it's, it's somehow, you know, when you're, when you're willing to risk transparency, it allows other people to kind of overlay their life under under what you're doing and kind of live vicariously through it so that's all we're trying to do is just continue to you know kind of create art that other people can can you know when we see the mona lisa we're like there's something about her smile that allows us to overlay our life on that or harry potter or you know to kill a mockingbird or you know it's like that's what art that's what i think that's why god gave us art is it allows us to um you know find out something about ourselves you know but the key to it has got to be transparent and vulnerable and that's often not easy to do i've enjoyed the hour i've really enjoyed the hour whoo man felt like i just went back to school (laughs) episode 71 with tom douglas and I'm going to go reevaluate. I'm going to go look at the scoreboard in my bedroom. <laughs> reevaluate a little bit. Don't do it. And uh, thanks, Tom, for stopping by. Enjoyed it. I will see you next time. Thank you, everybody. Bye.